Psalm 14. To the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Amen. Shakespeare taught us a lot of lessons from fools. In Twelfth Night, the fool is Festa. He sings and dances and makes funny remarks throughout the show. But his observations and his advice regarding what's happening also make him Olivia's most trusted advisor. In As You Like It, the fool is Touchstone, who dismantles many of the ridiculous arguments made by the play's main characters. Touchstone is very cynical, but he's very good with words, and Shakespeare presents him as actually being wiser than his foolish title would suggest. King Lear's fool doesn't get a name because his role in the play is as the king's alter ego or even his conscience. The fool speaks after each of Lear's most foolish decisions to highlight his folly. When Lear finally learns the lesson and admits what a fool he is, the fool exits the stage in death. Trinculo in The Tempest is the fool that most meets our expectations. He's Alonso's idiot court gesture and his antics in trying to lead a coup with Stefano against Prospero are the kind of foolishness that makes Shakespearean comedy actually funny. Four types of fools. Four different lessons to learn from them. And yet none of these four approach either the foolishness or the seriousness of the fool described in Psalm 14. This fool is more than just silly or dumb. The fool of the Psalms is wicked. The contrast between the wickedness of sinners and the holiness of God has been a theme of several of the Psalms leading up to this one. And the seriousness of the matter is indicated in lots of ways, but the most dramatic is probably just the repetition. Sometimes in scripture memorization, you can get a twofer. Those are always fun. You memorize Proverbs 6.11. You've also memorized Proverbs 24.34. When? 
learn Mark 10.15. You've learned Luke 18.17 as well. But it's pretty rare in Scripture for the same text to be repeated three times. And it's very rare for the repeated text to be an entire passage as long as this one. But here is Psalm 14, duplicated almost entirely in Psalm 53. Only two verses are different. And the meat of which is repeated by Paul in Romans 3. In fact, some scholars call Romans 1 a commentary on this psalm. It's just explaining to us, Paul is, what this psalm is really about. And so you know, with that much repetition, the stakes must be really high. The marks of Shakespeare's fools were somewhat varied. But as God sees them, fools all have one thing in common. Scripture's fool is man after the fall, carrying both the honor of bearing God's image and the shame of our sin. The fool is a person post-fall and absent redemption, a person with a heart of stone alienated from God and hostile in mind. But I get ahead of myself because the psalm doesn't begin with God talking about the fool. It begins with the fool talking about God. Verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. When you translate Hebrew into English, sometimes words that are implicit in the Hebrew text are made explicit in English to help with understanding. That's the case here, where the words, there is, have been added. And that's not inaccurate. That does help us understand what the fool says in his heart. But there's, there's also something helpful and informative about the plain Hebrew reading. The fool says in his heart, no God. The fool, you see, is not an academic atheist who reasons from first principles and from philosophical proofs that God, therefore, cannot exist. The fool is a far more practical atheist. The fool lives as though God does not exist. The fool says in his heart, no God for me. The fool counsels and consoles himself that God is not present. The fool will not submit his mind to another primarily because the fool does not want to submit his behavior. And that's where the psalm quickly moves, as now we do hear God speak, describing the fool as God sees him. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. When we read the first phrase of Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, we assume that we're dealing with the small subset of people called atheists in this world. So then the inclusiveness of what God says must really throw us for a loop. God says they have all turned aside. There is none who does good. One teacher put it this way, the fool is not a rare subspecies within the human race. It is the human race apart from the wisdom of God. 
The first lesson God teaches from the fool is that in Adam's fall, all became fools. The judgment is just as universal as unrepentance. From God's pre-redemption perspective, it's not that the fools are over there and the good people are over here. It's that all have turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. How many are good? How many will seek after God and his salvation? Not even one. The second lesson from a fool is the emphasis of Paul's use of this psalm in Romans. And it's that this foolishness isn't limited to certain aspects or components of our nature. It's the whole thing. The fall corrupted the whole person. Pre-redemption, everything about us is spoiled. The label for this doctrine is total depravity. Total, every aspect of our being, how we think, how our feelings interact, how our bodies decay, how our loves and priorities are all out of whack. Every aspect of our being is corrupted by the fall. The third lesson from the fool is that we, uh, what, we be- what we believe is seen in what we do. The Hebrew word Nabal, the fool that we're talking about, indicates a, a, cor- a contemptible person filled with wickedness and perversion. You can see it on the outside because their lives declare loudly what they've said in their heart. No God. Whether or not they ever say it with their lips. They live with no fear of God. They live to do what is right in their own eyes. Verse 1 highlights the connection that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then immediately at the same time, they do abominable things. Deeds. The fool is committed to this life of unrighteousness, and that life requires the fool to deny God in thought as well as deed. The fool could be a philosophical atheist, believing and telling others that we and this is all there is, but the fool is normally just a pragmatic deist. Whatever God there is, is locked up in heaven and divested of his righteousness and power. He's not going to do anything about it. Our attention tends to be focused on the vocal atheists as being worst of the worst. Did you see the YouTube clip of that atheist and the nonsense that he was speaking? But God sees through human words into human hearts. And he is repulsed by this functional atheism. The word that's translated corrupt in verse 1 has an Arabic cognate that refers to milk that has been spoiled. You ever had spoiled milk? I mean, I see the looks on your faces. Some of you have had spoiled milk. It's horrible. (laughs) Nothing tastes right for hours. It corrupts everything. And so, says one scholar, these people who should be walking in the way of righteousness from Psalm 1, they have soured on God, they've soured on religion, and their lives have become corrupt. The fool has a corrupted 
heart. He's emptied his heart of the knowledge of God, and it's backfilled with all kinds of depravity. What matters most is self, not God, not others. What means are acceptable are those which can work, not which those that are right. And so it's no surprise that the fool's life is filled with abominable deeds. All of life is spoiled like bad milk. There is no God. I do abominable deeds. And relationships are broken by selfishness, dishonesty, and sexual immorality. Wealth is gained by deception and outright theft. You can't contain this kind of corruption. Have you ever put one piece of bad fruit in the fruit drawer, the vegetable drawer with other good fruit? It quickly spoils The effects and the consequences of the fool's way of living are experienced by everyone around them. It is a quickly corrupting effect. So how do we live in a world of fools? We're impacted by unbelief and unrighteousness every day. We interact with those who say no God with their lips, or their lives, or both, every day. That, that corruption, that spoiled milk effect is all around us every day. How do we live in a world of fools? I think the psalm tells us. And where it points us first is humility. Probably not where we expect. In 1908, the Times of London decided to publish an article on the current state of society. And so to get perspectives for the article, they send out a letter to all the most famous authors of the day, asking them to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? The shortest, and in my opinion, best response they received was from the great writer G.K. Chesterton. It read, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What is wrong with the world? And Chesterton said, I am. For you see, what is wrong with the world is that human beings are sinners. It's that we turned aside and are corrupt and we've gone our own way and we do not seek after God. And Chesterton said, since I am a sinner, I am the problem. We have to start with humility because David does not say in verses 1 and 3, none of them do good. He says, there is none who does good. And when we critique the fool in his sin, which we are right to do, we must do so with humility. We can't forget what previously enslaved our own hearts and what wages war daily with our new self even now. The Russian poet Turnigev once said, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know the heart of a good man And it is terrible. This corruption is not at all unfamiliar to us. We know it. It's what infects our world. 
And when God looks down from heaven on the children of man, this is what he sees. It's what he saw in Genesis 6 when he looked down. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. My favorite Old Testament professor who's with the Lord now used to read that verse and then say, but other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? Only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart, only evil continually. This is what God saw when he looked down in Genesis 11 and the people were saying, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. It's what God saw in Genesis 18 in Sodom and Gomorrah. These are snapshots of the world of the fool. They're snapshots of the world that we make when we say, no, God. God comes down from heaven. He looks for any that understand, for any that will do good. And in our spoiled corruption, he finds no one, not even one. That's why we approach a foolish world with humility. Because we, alone among all people, understand the judgment we deserve. God's analysis of our world was not wrong. And if there was no one out there who ever caused me to sin or led me into rebellion, there was enough corruption in here to do it all on my own without them. In verses 4 through 6, we can see how blind the foolish world is to the reality of judgment. They live as though by simply saying there is no God, they can will it to be true. They live as though God does not and will not come down to look and see. They live as though they can save themselves or really as though there's nothing to be saved from. How do we live with humility in a foolish world? Christians, pray for them. Plead with them. Have a sense of compassionate urgency for the lost. They're blind to the real consequences of their sin. They're blind to the judgment of God that is being poured out against unrighteousness. And so with love and with humility, tell them the truth. To live well in a world of fools, I think we also need to understand how they got there. We, we really need to grasp the path of foolishness. One pastor thinks it's more of a continuous cycle than a path. He said, having denied God, it's no surprise that he becomes a fool in practice. He would not deny God if he were not a fool by nature. And having denied God, it is no surprise that he becomes a fool. It's a vicious cycle. And we look at them with such we look at them with such contempt as if we can't imagine how someone could become so foolish. But that's not true. We look at them with such superiority as if we must be so much greater and more righteous than them to have not gone down that path. But we know that's not true. On this point, Paul's letter to the Romans becomes quite helpful. Kids, uh, ignorant people 
They're often college age and majoring in philosophy. We'll talk about atheism like it's a legitimate, well-reasoned worldview. I'm not even talking about whether atheism is the correct worldview. I'm just talking about whether or not simply it's an option that should be taken seriously. The well-kept secret is that deep thinkers do not take atheism seriously as a philosophical position because atheism cannot be rationally defended by facts or by logic. Atheism is the denial of facts and logic. And the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest deep thinkers of his age, is writing to first century deep thinkers in Rome, a city where they do some pretty deep thinking. And in that letter, he unpacks the logic of this psalm and shows the path of foolishness. And it doesn't begin with serious philosophical or scientific examination of the world. It's exactly the opposite. The path of foolishness begins by denying what serious philosophical and scientific analysis of the world will tell you, that God is. Look at the world. Look at human, plant, and animal life. You all have seen those really cool nature documentaries where it shows you the the spider that has a poison that would kill the spider if it didn't have this perfectly designed sack to keep it in and away from its body. Study astronomy. Study geology. Study the world as it is, and it cries out, God is I read this week, there is enough evidence of God in a snowflake, in a fingerprint, in a flower, in a drop of water to lead any honest member of the human race to know that God is. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, that the reason the person is a fool and not nearly mistaken is that he knows God is, and yet he chooses to act as if he is not. If atheism isn't a reasonable philosophical or scientific conclusion, then what is it? Why would any sane person say in their heart, know God, when deep down they know that cannot be true? Well, the answer isn't about facts. The answer is about wants. They want to live without God because they do not love what he loves and want what he wants. That same author concluded, they try to live without God because they do not like God. Everything about him is an offense to them. He is sovereign. They are not, though they wish they could be. He is holy, they are not. His holiness is condemnation of their sin. He is omniscient, they are not. They find his knowledge, his complete knowledge of them to be unsettling. He is love, they are filled with hatred. 
He is gracious. They are ungracious. He is wise. They are foolish. You could go on and on. And so how does a life get to the point of pouring out corruption and filth? It begins by denying that God is. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. This is the path of foolishness. Fools will tell you that to believe Christianity, or any religion really, you have to close your eyes to the world around you. That you have to pretend not to see all the things that are out there. But it's just the opposite that is true. And so for you to live well in a world of fools, you need to open your eyes. You need to inspect the created order to see his eternal power and divine nature through the things that he's made. Go on a hike. Watch more nature documentaries. Go outside and look at the stars. Spend some time in the world that God has made. And do you know what it will tell you? God is. And then seek to understand those things rightly through his special revelation, Scripture, where, with fear of the Lord, true wisdom can be found. If you will do this, The contrast in results is profound. Clearly, that's most evident on the day of judgment. Those who are wise in their own eyes, and so fools, will stand before God condemned by their corrupting deeds. Those who, by the grace of God, have learned both of the need for salvation and the impossibility of doing it ourselves will receive the crown of life on account of the righteousness we've been given in Christ. But we don't have to wait for that day to live a different experience than the fool. Verse 5 alludes to an underlying sense of psychological dread that is the natural result of the path of foolishness. When, when a human says, no God, there is an inward fear that they can't explain. And they spend most of their life doing everything they can to avoid. When things get quiet, when their thoughts turn to matters serious, the inescapable reality of God and his moral universe intrude upon their externally confident rebellion. And it uses the word dread. They live with an underlying sense of dread. Yes, they're wearing masks of confidence. 
They're wearing masks of indifference. But those are for you to see. One writer said in verse 5, these people are portrayed as unsettled. While they won't personally acknowledge God, they can't help but see that he makes a significant difference in the lives of righteous people. And consequently, the evildoers are left with a sinking sense of dread. Are you living your life in such a way that someone who has said in their hearts, no God, would also say, I wish I had that. I don't know what they have, but I want it. How differently we can live in a world of fools by simply standing firm in the faith. In contrast to this dread, David isn't shuddering. Look, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. David knows, standing firm in the faith, there is salvation for God's people because God is and God has saved them. The nagging sense of God's existence is a terror to the fool. Their wickedness is wicked. It is seen and it will be judged. But for God's people, his person, his presence, his promises, and his power are all great comfort. Christian, be comforted by his power. Because that's your power unto salvation and for walking in new life and obedience. Christian, be comforted by his promises because God has done what he said. He's saved us from our sins. He's brought us out of the path of foolishness and into the kingdom of his son. Believer, be comforted by his presence because he is your shield and your buckler in this world of fools that are slinging spears and arrows against you. He's protecting you from evil and he's even using their foolishness for your good and to make you more like Christ and find comfort in his person because God is And we who love him long to see him. By God's grace, we are no longer fools. And by his same grace, there's a whole lot we can learn from them.